we're back in our series in the Gospel of Luke. We've uh, been away for a few weeks, and uh, we're um, journeying on and looking uh, and discovering the, the truth about Jesus, knowing the truth about Jesus. And so if you have your outlines, you might want to pull that out. And, and as we uh, look at the passage uh, this morning, uh, the, the title of the message is Following the Real Jesus. And you would expect in a place like this, is that's, uh, that's the idea we want to get across, is that we want you to know Jesus and we want you to follow Jesus. But the passion of our heart is not just any Jesus, it's the real Jesus. You can go down, down to Mexico and there's a lot of people named Jesus, Jesus, uh, there's all kinds of people named Jesus. But who is the real Jesus that, that we're to follow? And, and the reality is that sometimes people say, well, it's the Jesus in the Bible. But y- y- sometimes when you read the Bible, you miss some of the things in it. Have you ever discovered that? And you kind of just gloss over some things. You just pick out the things you like and leave the things you don't like. Um, And so this morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that really kind of broadens our view of who Jesus is. And if we're following the real Jesus, then we need to understand all of who he really is. I came across an article in Tomorrow's World, and this is what they said. They said, was Jesus a nice person? And they went on and said this. The answer is that billions of human beings have a completely distorted idea as to who the real Jesus Christ was, how he actually lived his life here on earth, and what he really taught. An incorrect understanding of all these questions was definitely, will definitely affect your life and maybe your eternal life. The vast majority of mainstream Protestants and Catholics, so they put everybody together, have a completely unbiblical concept of how Jesus of Nazareth looked and acted and what he would really do in many, many situations. This infects and affects our entire attitude of what Christianity is all about. And then they gave a specific example, not the ones we'll look at the passage we're in this morning. But if you're honest with yourself, you'll have to admit that this Jesus in the Bible would be rejected if he were to appear in flesh today. How would our modern people around, uh, leaders and ministers, pastors, as well as just people, react to Jesus' statement to the Syrophoenician woman who asked for the healing of her daughter? So she wasn't, uh, she wasn't part of God's chosen people, Israel, as God was uh, particularly working through uh, that people group in that day as he made that covenant promise. And this is what Jesus said to someone who had seen Jesus heal all kinds of people. And he said this, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, how many would be offended if someone called your little child a dog? And we think about, well, who would have said something like that? Well, if you look at the scripture, it was Jesus who said that. Now, now how do we understand that? I'm not going to unpack that particular section of scripture, but it does give you a little bit of a glimpse into maybe the Jesus that we follow is a little bit tamer than um, the Jesus in the Bible. And, and so this morning, we're, we're going to try to, to search the scriptures and, and see the Jesus in scripture, not our Jesus, but the real Jesus. And in case I, I, I kind of, in the midst of the detail, kind of uh, speak in such a way you miss the main point, is we're going to see that Jesus is really tender in his love for people, and he really cares. And, and as uh, one, of my, uh, one of my characteristics I'm praying for every day, uh, well, not necessarily every day because I don't want it every day, but I'm praying that I might be kinder and gentler. <laughs> and that's because that's how Jesus is, but the reality is as we picture kinder and gentler, Jesus wasn't always kinder and gentler. Depending upon the situation, he, he would respond in tender love, and other times he would respond with tough love. And if anyone's been a parent or anyone that's uh, had responsibilities and 
raising or supervising others. So some, sometimes you need to come around and, and give someone a hug, and, and sometimes you need to get, come around and give them a swift what? You know, whatever you want to fill in that blank with, right? And, and it, it, you see Jesus, Jesus, Jesus was tender, but, but he was also tough and expressing true love to people and, and giving them what they needed to hear or see. And if it, if it wasn't just the one he was speaking to, it was those who were watching him and listening to him speak to others. As he was getting out a message that, that they needed to hear, that this is, this is the most joyful message that God could unfold for people, God's love. But if we miss God's plan, there's, there's a seriousness of God's judgment that will come upon anyone. Who doesn't respond to him. And so this morning, we're, we're going to look at following the real Jesus, seeing Jesus in the scripture. And let's, uh, let's just unpack it. We're going to go back a little bit from where we left off. And, and then we're going to venture off in a rather short section, but it has a lot to say to us. If you remember back, uh, we, we look at a familiar scripture. In fact, in, in September, we, we decided to have uh, Easter in the sense that we looked at the week of Jesus right before he went to the cross and went to the grave and then rose from the grave, and we celebrate the victory that happens on Easter morning. But before Easter morning, there were some things that led up to it, and it, was, it began with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We call that what Sunday? Palm Sunday. And there's some debate whether that Palm Sunday actually happened on Sunday or Monday, but what we're really dealing with here is that Jesus last week, and if you think about all the things that said about Jesus, if you look at the four Gospels, what said more about Jesus than anything else is his last week. Because that brings it all into focus as why Jesus came. And Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's kind of a sobering message because really what God says in his word is that, that, that we were all lost. We all needed to be found and, and God did Desperate means to reach out, to, to grab us, and to, to eliminate that which separates us from God, which is our sin, and, and bring us into close relationship to him. And, and so as we see in this last week of Jesus, we see a picture into his heart, into his soul, and to who he really is, and that's hopefully what we get to see this morning. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 19, and we're going to begin at verse 41, and then we'll, we'll come back and just kind of highlight some of the things we had to, that we see in this text. When he... Jesus approached Jerusalem, he, he saw the city and he wept over it. Now, now, the context of this, and I kind of introduced it just briefly, is that, that Jesus has just had a, a celebrated experience. I mean, he went in Jerusalem, he was coming down from Bethany, about a two and a half mile trek, and, and, and everyone came out to see Jesus. Jerusalem had swelled from a few hundred thousand people to two and a half million people. And they heard that Jesus was coming, and they're proclaiming him as, as king. As they, they're proclaiming him as the, the savior for them. As they, somehow they believed that, that this was the time in which God's promised truth, that the oppression on God's people would be eliminated and lifted off. And, and they thought Jesus was the answer for Rome's oppression. And so they were celebrating him with Hosanna, save us, save us now. And they were throwing their clothes on the ground for the, the donkey that he was riding and to walk upon. And they were waving palm branches. And they were so excited about Jesus because he was the one who was going to rescue them. And, and when you would think about, you know, when, when people, I've had that really happen. But if, if people were to cheer me, I'd be excited, right? Because, I mean, they're, they're just praising me. And, and the reality of Jesus looked into their heart and they had missed it. 
And so when he, when he came back the next day, we, we have him weeping. We have him weeping that day and the day, days to come. Verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, if you had known this day, even you, the things that make for peace... But now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a ta- barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. The day of their visitation, when God visited us, when God sent his son, when God became a man and tabernacled among them and and manifested God in the most clearest way because God became a man. And it says that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Now, we don't have a lot of occasions where we have Jesus recorded laughing or, or weeping, for that matter. The, the, some of the passages I have there for you, and, and here's the point I want to get across is if I try to break down looking and following the real Jesus, is that Jesus weeps over those who should believe but don't. And each one of these points, as we look at Jesus, I guess the application for us is if, if we're following Jesus, what breaks the heart of God or what, God, what moves God to action or to emotion ought, ought to move us to action and emotion. Would we agree? And as Jesus weeps over those who should have believed, and we would believe and we could recognize that if anyone should have recognized who the Messiah was, it would have been the Jewish people. It would have been Israel because they had received all the promises of God and yet they missed it. And and he pronounces judgment upon them. That's going to happen in 70 AD as God plays out the promises and the the judgments of God on on Israel. But we we don't want to miss Jesus' reaction to that. It breaks his heart. Now, the most familiar passage we have about Jesus weeping is found in John chapter 11, verse 35, where it says, Jesus wept. That's a two-word memory verse. So everybody say, Jesus wept. You've all memorized the scripture, right? Jesus wept. But there's a commentary on that in verse 36, because after verse 35 comes verse 36, and it says, the Jews were watching and observing him, and they said, oh, Saul, let's just see how much he loved him. And who was it he, he loved? It's Lazarus, who was now in the grave. And, and death was, or separation from God was never part of God's plan. And when he saw the reality and experienced the reality and, and seeing the death of Lazarus, it just brought him to tears. But, but the reality is when he, when he wept for Lazarus, it was kind of a, a quiet sobbing. But when he came in Jerusalem, and a different Greek word here, because he wept, he wailed at all the peoples that would be affected by the rejection of him. And so as we think about following Jesus, and it's the most joyful experience you can have following Jesus because you're, you're in God's plan and you experience that supernatural relationship with him where, where God never leaves you and during the, the times that are difficult and heartbreaking, he's always there with you, is that we need to realize that weeping in the experience of following Jesus is part of following Jesus. But what we need to weep about is not just those things that sometimes upset us, but what we ought to weep about are the things that that Jesus weeps about. And and what he wept about was those who should have believed but didn't believe. Do do we have anybody in in this place that maybe is still on the outside looking in? 
God weeps for your heart. And if, if, if we know people that are not here, that are somehow outside of Jesus, that which should move us to emotion, where we cry out to God to rescue those we know that we love and care about that are still far from him. And what we need to realize is that that's been true of all those who follow Jesus closely. In Romans chapter 9, we have the Apostle Paul, who was Jewish, but was called to to reach out to the non-Jewish population, which are called Gentiles, which is just a a statement in Scripture about anyone who's not Jewish. And he says, but he he speaks about his own people. In Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, it says, I'm telling you that the truth in Christ I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And the next verse says, the Israelites. Now, isn't it amazing when people somehow had to preface what they say or write and said, I'm going to tell you the truth. It's really the truth. I'm not lying to you. And whenever you hear that, I always think, well, does that mean when you don't say that, you are lying to me and not telling the truth, right? But it, that's not really the case. What he's saying, I'm going to tell you something that just seems so, so out there that how could it be true? Because really, he said, you know, I, I would sacrifice, if it was all possible, my relationship with God. I would take on the eternal judgment of God if somehow I could rescue my people who have rejected Jesus. I've come to great sorrow over people that I love and are my people, my oikos, my relational world that doesn't know Jesus. So as we think about following Jesus, sometimes that'll break our heart as we think about the, the commission and the, that he's given us to, to reach out to people we love and care about. And I want you to know that, that God cares that much about you as well. It, it, it breaks his heart when you reject his offer and this is a judgment on the, on the nation of Israel. But I want you to know, and I, I, there's so many tangents we could follow, but let me read a section from Romans chapter 11. Sometimes uh, we, we can be a little bit too hard, I think, a little bit too harsh on, on the nation of Israel. Because really what he's saying, they're a picture of what we do as well. And God has a plan for Israel. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, the whole section of Romans, I think, speaks to this. But he says, For I do not want you, brethren, he's speaking to a Gentile church, to be unformed of this mystery. So you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant, my promise to them when I take away their sins. God said that in the Old Testament, their judgment was going to come to Israel, but he also talked about blessing as well. And then in Romans chapter 11, verse 20, this is a whole section we could spend a month of Sundays on. He says, to the Gentile church. Quite right then, they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you are to stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, which is Israel, he will not spare you either. And really, the statement is to the church. If we just think because we go to a church that you know, that makes us part of God's family, that that's like Israel thinking I'm part of God's family because ethnically I'm, I'm part of God's chosen people. 
The only people that are part of God's family are people whose heart is given to him. And he said, don't be so proud because that was an object lesson for all of you. You can look a certain way on the outside, but what's on the inside? Not that we live it out perfectly, but where is our heart? Where's the direction of our life? And we ought to weep for those who just have enough about Jesus that they don't really know him. That ought to break our heart. But in Luke, the whole message goes on because after his heart breaks and he begins weeping, wailing for the unbelief and rejection of the chosen people who had all the word of God that spoke directly about the one who was to come. We have him actually on the next day in verse 45, a a section in which we have Jesus now coming back in to Jerusalem. Verse 45, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and, and my house should be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching them daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the, and the scribes and the leading men among the peoples were trying to destroy him, and they could not find anything that they might do for all the people, I really like this phrase, were hanging on to every word he said. That's just like you, right? You, you hang on every word I say, right? Why are you laughing? All right, anyway. He, you know, when Jesus spoke, like E.F. Hutton, you remember that old commercial, everyone what? Everyone listened, and, and, and they, even though they didn't want to hear what he had to say, they couldn't, they couldn't stop listening because he spoke with such authority, and they were amazed at what he had to say, and they were compelled to, what, what is Jesus going to do and say next? But what we have here is after the triumphal entry, after he cries over Israel, he comes back the next day, and, he, and in the other gospel accounts, it says he got up early, and he got there. And what was interesting in many ways, if we, we kind of look into the story, is that Probably for the crowd, they were a little shocked about where he went. Because they, they were proclaimed Hosanna, which is a word to say, save us, save us now. And they were really looking to be saved politically. And the American church never looks at it that way, do we? Do we? We never do that way. Okay, well, they, were, they, were, they were looking to save us now, save us now. And, and they were thought, well, if he's really going to do that, where's he going to go? They were probably, well, he's going to go to the Roman garrison. <laughs> and he's, he's going to do something powerful. Or maybe he'll go to Fort Antonio and go where Pilate is. And, and he'll tell these really wicked people what they need to do. But he doesn't go there to contemporize it. He goes to what? He goes to church. He goes to the temple. And he takes people that they would think are a lot better off. They're closer to God than the Romans. And what does he do? I mean, he just destroys everything. He begins to, to take their worship or their false worship, and he begins just to, to do everything possible to, to drive them out of the place in which they were to meet God. And this was at the end of his ministry, and, and it was kind of a lasting statement about false worship. But essentially about the, the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus in terms of his public ministry it was only about three years in length. And, and what's interesting is that he ended his ministry in many ways, how he began it. If you have your Bibles, turn it over to John chapter 2. And it's actually a longer description of not the same event, but what he, what he did at the beginning. In uh, John chapter 2, we have the, the recording of his first miracle. And his first miracle was going to a wedding and uh, turning the water into to wine. And, and then there were some interesting conversations after that. And in John chapter 2, we, we, we kind of pick up the, the point of of what he did to begin his ministry. The Passover, and this is the same time in which 
this last cleansing of the temple happened, the Passover of the Jews was near. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers sitting at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them out over the temple. And a, 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 a scourge of cords is what? It's a, it's a whip, right? It, it's a whip that if you get hit by it, it's going it's to hurt. And it's Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, who's starting to whip people. And he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So he, he took people's businesses, their, their uh, establishment, and he began just upturning everything, and their money flies everywhere. And it's one individual. And, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, there was a reaction. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us your authority for doing these things? Now, they were just shocked. One, shocked at, the, at even just what they experienced. How does one man just explode everything that happened in a large place like the temple? And so they couldn't deny the power because you just did it. How did you do that? Well, he had power, but... Did you have the right to do what you just did? And, and then he says this, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they're thinking, come on, this is crazy. Do you know how long it took to build this temple? Verse 20, then, then Jesus said to them, it, it took 46 years to build the temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But they missed the point. He wasn't speaking of, the, the, he wasn't speaking of that temple that he had just cleansed, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. So really, what is he projected further and said, look, at, you, you understand, when we, when we come to church, we think this is whose house? God's house. You know, this is where, where, where God dwells. Okay, well, until you come into this place, this is not anymore a place where God dwells than any other place. In a sense, we don't go to church. We are the church. We don't go to the temple. The temple is, a, is the place where God dwells, and that was the picture in the Old Testament. But, but we are the temple of God. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, it says we, our bodies are the temple. And so make sure you, you use it in a way that glorifies and honors him. A temple or a church is a place where, where God's presence is. Now, when we collectively come together, there's a, there's a manifestation of that. But when we leave this place, if the Spirit of God lives within you, if you know Jesus, the church goes with you because you are the church. As someone put it this way, don't go to church, be the church. Now, we gather together to worship and to honor and to build up our faith, but we scatter to influence others. And they had missed it. And so he even told that analogy. So look at it. You want to know what authority I have? The real temple, which is where the, the living God dwells, my earth suit is going to be put in the grave, but three days later I'm going to raise from that. That's the authority that I have because I am God in your presence. Now, what I believe that story, and we could, we could unpack it in so many different ways. He went in there because they were, it wasn't that it was wrong to sell things, but it's how they were selling it. 
I mean, they were gouging the people. They, they had poor people. And sometimes 5, 10, 15, 25 times the price it should have been to, to be able to worship. The reason it's pointed out in the, John, the, the Johanian or the John section is about the, getting the doves out. The doves were the, the, the cheapest way to give a sacrifice to God. And, and they had gouged the poorest of the poor where they could hardly even afford to, to give a simple act of worship to God. And as we think about that, what I want to say this is, as we think about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus has a heart that breaks over the, the lostness of people, and so, so should we. Secondly, we need to recognize that Jesus is now not always meek and mild, but knows what to be angry about. And the question is, do we? Do we know what to be angry about? Now, I'm not saying that Jesus isn't meek and mild. And, and some of you this morning, that's the Jesus you need because you have been just, you've been harassed all week. You're bruised and battered and you need someone you know cares about you. Well, there is that Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, it says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you, I'll give you rest. And he even goes on there, so, you know, look, you know, come and learn from me, for I am, and this is Jesus speaking of, I am gentle and humble of heart. So if at this moment you need God to be gentle with you, that, that is the God of Scripture. That is the Jesus of Scripture. Paul even appealed to that in his own ministry, Paul, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. But if that's all we have, if, if somehow we've reduced Jesus to Jesus meek and mild, and, and Charles Wesley, who wrote many traditional hymns, and when he wrote, you know, when you think about, you know, we have the, I don't know, we call them worship wars, but we have the, you know, we have contemporary worship, you have traditional worship, but you need to realize that traditional worship used to be what kind of worship? Contemporary worship, right? <laughs> Those songs used to be new when they first wrote them. Does that make sense? Okay, so everyone has their own music. Uh, and, and really the issue is, is, you know, what's the message of the songs? What is the message of the hymns? And, and again, there, there's no hymn, there's no song that can tell it all, but Charles Wesley is the one who really kind of promoted Jesus, meek and mild. In fact, he had a hymn, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon a little child. Pity my simplicity, suffer me, come to thee. Put thy hands upon my head. Let me in thy arms be stayed. Let me lean upon thy breast and lull me, lull me, Lord, to rest. Hold me fast in thine embrace. Let me see thy smiling face. Give me, Lord, thy blessings give. Pray for me, and I shall live. Lamb of God, I, I look to thee. Thou shalt my example be. Thou art gentle, meek, and mild. Thou wast once a little child. Now, that's true, but if that's all Jesus is to you, then you only have half a Jesus. The Jesus who went in to the temple at least twice recorded and just turned over the money changers, cast out all the animal, animals that were being sold, just got everyone out, in fact, stopped the whole parade, the whole worship at that moment, was not meek and mild. Some put it this way, you know, there, there's anger and then there's, there's righteous anger and and usually that's what's described here. And this is an issue we have to see Jesus in and then see how does that relate to us. 
And we have to be careful on both sides of that. In James chapter 1, verse 19, verse 20, it says, Be quick to hear, slow to speak, which I, I really don't like that phrase, slow to speak. <laughs> speak slowly? No, okay. Uh, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And then it says to all of us, you need to understand the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And I think the, the, the emphasis there is the anger of man. My anger, my anger. My anger about things that really don't matter, okay? That never achieves the righteousness of God. But then Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, it's an interesting command. I hope you realize this. Be angry. That's a command. That's not a suggestion. That's just not an option. There's certain things you ought to be angry about. Be angry. But then it says this, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And so as we get angry about certain things, what do we do with that anger? Do, do we do it in constructive ways or destructive ways? And Jesus looks like he was doing destructive ways, but what he was doing, he was cleansing false worship. And there ought to be certain things that we get passionate about. A couple examples of what made Jesus mad. Mark chapter 3, verse 5, other than cleansing the temple. After looking around at them with, what's the next word there? Anger. Grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to them, man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And I only gave you that one section there, but in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is in this environment where it's, it's, it's the Sabbath. And here we have a person in need, desperate need, and he's about to heal him, and he knows people are going to react to it. He said, is it, is it, is it good to do good on the Sabbath? And he, he could read their minds, and they say, no, you can't do anything good on the Sabbath, because that's work. And what he was so angry about is they had used Scripture, but they had twisted it. The Sabbath was made for man. It was for our good. And they had made it for our bad, if you want to put it that way. And they didn't get it. It is always right to do good. And they had missed it. And they had, they had somehow justified their attitude and their action by Scripture, but they had misused Scripture. And that made God angry. And that happens all the time today in the contemporary church. Just because people use Scripture does not mean what they're saying is true and right. Mark chapter 10, verse 14, and, and we've talked about this the last couple of weeks in terms of how, how we need, need to understand we're to be a multi-generational church. Everybody matters, right? And, and, and particularly we need to see children as precious in God's sight. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And that's just a different word for what? Anger. He, he was angry. He was angry. And you know who he was angry at? He was angry at his disciples because they didn't get it. And he said to them, permit the, the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So what's the point in this section? Now let me put it as simply as possible. Jesus is angry. Anywhere we make it hard for people to know, and you could put this way, or see God. There's kind of a, a bigger backstory in this. You know, if I was as creative as some, I'd have the temple up here, and you could see the temple and how it's put together. But, but the temple was put together in a way in which God had a kind of an order of worship. There was the outer court, and then, the, then as you began to get inside, you had the court of the Gentiles, you had the court of women, court of the, Israel, uh, of the Israelites, you had the court of the priests, you had the holy place and the holy of holies. 
And where all this was going on in which he cleansed the temple was the court of the Gentiles. And so what was happening in the court of Gentiles was just making a mockery of coming in the presence of God with a sense of reverence and holiness. And it wasn't just the noise, but what they were doing in the noise of, of just, just making worship hard for everybody. But particularly in that place, the only place you could go to, to see God, to observe God in his present manifestation of what, what the reality is of, of knowing him was all about was at the temple. And in many ways, that's a, that's a great invitation for people to say, well, what is this Christianity all about? Well, let them look around and see other Christians. Let, let them hear the word of God taught. Help, help them see the, the good news and the, and the challenging news in God's word. And, and, you know, in a sense, you could say they, they, could only, they could only be in the back seats. Now, in our day, most of you, you don't want to sit with me in the front seats. We got, we got one over here, Eric. You know, Eric's in the front row. You know. But, you know, the, the best seats were, you know, closer to the Holy of Holies. And they were, in the, they were in the back part of the, the temple. And that's where all this was going on. Now, just imagine. I, I want to find out what this Yahweh that the, the Israelite people are, are following. Is it, is it something I might want to get involved in? Might, might want to trust? Maybe that's the God I want to trust in. And, and, and so they come and all, all these bizarre things are happening where people are taking advantage of others in a, in a place of worship. And, and so what they were doing... In the temple, not only they weren't worshiping well, but they weren't allowing other people to even think about worshiping the true God because all the, the selfishness and sin that was in their heart. And, and so as we think about following the real Jesus, we want to be passionate about, I don't want to live in any kind of way, and we all mess up, but I don't, that, the, the direction of my life, I want to live in such a way that people can have a, have a hard time seeing the true Jesus. And at this point, we're, we're, we're now looking at the other side. I don't want them to miss the true love and tenderness and care of this Jesus because I'm making a mockery about how I live. Does that make sense? And, and that's what was happening here. And the only place a non-Jew could come and, and try to meet God or see God, and they had made a mockery of it by their values. Because what was most important to them was how much they were getting. So who is the real Jesus? The real Jesus, when his heart breaks over lost people, and the question for us is, do we? Does our heart break over lost people? Secondly, do we see Jesus as not just meek and mild, but there's certain things he gets angry about? And the question, do we? And then looking at this, we've already read this section, but I'd make two other very simple points. Number one, or number three is, Jesus courageously speaks the truth about what really matters, and he uses Scripture. And I get that from, from Luke chapter 19, in, in, in which Jesus, he says, what you have done is, is you have made this temple a place that should have been a house of prayer, and you, you've just desecrated it. And then you say that you, you made it a, a robber's den. And so he, he speaks the truth with power, uh, and can you imagine that? You've, you've, made, you've made this place in which people ought to be free to pray, and there's no way they can pray. And really, instead of a place where people who want to, to meet God, this is a place where people who, who do their evil and run to, and, and, and they get support. You know, Denim Roberts is basically a place where, 
where you, know, you, you do your evil deed, and they had done all their plans to do evil, and then, they, then they, they ran to the place where they thought they could be safe in doing what they had planned. And, and when you think about missing, it's a house of prayer. They, they didn't say, this is the time I talk with God. This is where people talk to me, and I get what I want. Now, we never do that, do we? It, you know, sometimes we, what, 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 what did I get out of church today? What's, there's a place for that. But also it's the thing, what, what am I giving to God? And I'm not talking about the offerings. I'm talking about how am I getting close to God? How am, how am, what am I contributing to my relationship with God? And what am I doing for his sake? And they had missed it. And so when we, uh, when we speak the truth about what really matters, you know, it really helps when we use Scripture, doesn't it? He quoted from Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 and 7, Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifice will be acceptable in my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. And you can see why he picked that particular passage to authenticate what he was doing, because it wasn't just for the people of Israel. Israel was always to be a blessing to all the nations. And they didn't get it. I just met with a, a, a child this past week, and it was about baptism. And we were breaking it down as simple as possible. And, I, and we talked about, well, how, how, do you, how do you make that commitment to, to God? He said, well, you got to pray. I said, well, what is prayer? Prayer is talking with God. And they had created such a place that, that, that people didn't feel free to talk with God. And so Jesus, he courageously spoke the truth about what really matters, and so should we. And, and use Scripture. And you say, well, I don't know a lot of Scripture. Well, use the Scripture you do have. And that's why we come together, so that we know God's Word better, and, and then we can use it. And it's not a competition, but we want to think, well, what, what does the Bible have to say? And you can't quote or paraphrase it. But realize that's where our authority comes from. So when Jesus said it, he said, this is, this, at this point, this is where I'm getting my authority. Before, he said, oh, let, me, let me tell you. And in, in, in the first time he went to the temple, at the beginning of his ministry, he said, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you what my authority is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die, and three days later, I'll rise from the dead. Now, even though they didn't say it in the passage, they said, what authority do you have to cast out all the money changers and upturn, uh, uh, turn over all the, the tables uh, and, and stop the flow of animals that are overpriced? And he quoted scripture. And see, that's where our authority, you know, authority is not, what did, what did the pastor say today? You know, you know, that's why you don't hang on every word I say. But, but, you know, the word of God is the source of authority. And so we can speak the truth courageously. And then finally, which is an interesting statement here. In verse 47, we read it already, but, and he was teaching daily in the temple. You ever had, uh, been in a, a class or a small group or I remember I got these kind of questions when I was in some psychology classes and you know they'll ask the question well you know if there was a fire what things would you take out of your house you know pictures money maybe my kids you know whatever it might be okay so so you know what 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 do you really value right you know that kind of thing um but if you had another thing if you if you if you knew you're only gonna live for one more week what would you do? 
Would you go to the happiest place in the world? Would you go to Disneyland? <laughs> you know, what, what would you do with your time if you only had a few days left and you knew it? Now, Jesus knew this, these were his last days, right? He knew that. And I, you know, I don't want to make you know, just of it the whole time. He could have said, I'm just going to spend time with my closest companions. We're, we're going we're gonna to get away and we're going to pray or we're going to worship together or we're going to you know, do whatever, okay? We're going to refresh our spirit by being involved in activities that we all enjoy. We'll have our favorite meals, you know, the, the last meal, right? What's your last meal? What did Jesus do? He kept communicating the truth daily. And he, and he knew what was going to be the reaction of, you could say, the majority. They wanted to kill him. But, but I think we need to look beyond that. I, I'm sure in the midst as he taught them daily, there were many who heard it one more time that responded, if not faith right then, that was instrumental in what brought them to faith after the cross and after the empty tomb. Because in reality, when Jesus went to the cross, he, he had the 12, one had already left, and he had the 11, and, and we do know that the 11, they weren't bold in their confidence of what all was happening, were they? They, they ran away in fear. After the resurrection, they, they gathered together, and you have Acts chapter 1, and, and there was about 120, Right? And then you, could, you can kind of name maybe some other words because when he, when he had the, the resurrection, he appeared to 500 at one time. So you could say, well, they had the 120 and the 500. Maybe they had maybe 620. But on the first message recorded after the cross, 3,000 people came to Jesus. Now, we, we could say, well, Peter just preached a remarkably powerful message. Now, it was the daily teaching of Jesus before he went to the cross. And so as we think about that is, what do we? What do we do? Now, we're not Jesus. We're not Peter. We're not Paul. We're not any of those people. We're not Billy Graham. But, but we all have people in our relational world that need to know Jesus. And the thing, are we daily concerned about them? We're not going to daily talk with them, but are we daily concerned about them? Are we praying for them? Does our heart break over them? As we think about following <laughs> the real Jesus, seeing the Jesus in Scripture, it's, he is making my, I don't, want, I, don't want to, I don't want to eliminate that. He is the one who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Learn from me because I'm gentle and tender of heart. I'm humble of heart. We, we, we appeal to all of us out of the gentleness and meekness of Christ. And meekness is not weakness. But there's some backbone. There's some toughness in Jesus' love. And, and so, so, so we want to balance that in our following Jesus. It's, it's calling for us all to be strong in our faith and to stand firm in the midst of the opposition and speak a message of boldness as well as of love and mercy. The question for all of us this morning is, are we following the true Jesus and all of who he is? That's the call of Jesus on every life.